Today's episode of The Daily Jungle is brought to you by Fan Exchange. With Memorial Day in the rear view, summer is just around the corner, and summer means one thing, baseball at the yard. And the best way to get there, Fan Exchange. Head on over to fanexchange.com for a safe, easy, and reliable experience. Tickets purchased on Fan Exchange are always guaranteed. You don't have to sweat getting to the gate and worrying about getting in. So, whether it's March Madness, or Major League Baseball, or WrestleMania, or Coachella, or a Broadway musical, Fan Exchange will get you closer to the action. You can find the very best seats at the very best prices at fanexchange.com. Just use the promo code ROAM. The promo code ROAM will get you 50% off service fees on your next purchase. Fan Exchange. We have tickets. Check it out now. Fan Exchange. Live from Southern California, this is the Jim Rome Show. You see, this is why the Golden State Warriors are the champs. Because they can do what they did last night. Game 7 on the road. It could not have gotten off to any worse of a start for Golden State. It could not have started any better for Houston. Klay Thompson got into early foul trouble. The Warriors were a disaster with the ball. They were missing free throws. I mean, that offense was about as disorganized as I've ever seen from them. They were a total mess on defense. They were getting murdered on the offensive glass. I mean, I've never seen a Steve Kerr coach team that out of sorts. And then it was happening on the biggest stage at the worst possible time. I mean, I had no idea who or what the hell I was watching. I just knew it was not the defending champs. And sure, Houston did have something to do with it. The Rockets were killing it. James Harden was in double digits early on. He was abusing the Warriors' Matador D and getting to the rack anytime he wanted. And Eric Gordon to me. Gordon is a warrior. This guy was killing the game, and that barn was as loud as hell. And saying that somebody wanted it more, to me, has always been one of the lamest things ever. But in the first half, the Rockets just wanted it more. The Warriors could not match Houston's aggression or their energy or their sense of urgency. They look like a crew that was about to shock the world, about to knock the defending champs the hell out, even without Chris Paul. Houston was playing like they were minutes away from the finals, and the Warriors were playing like it was some mid-January game. Kevin Durant was a ghost early on. Draymond was clanking his open looks. I mean, all in all, they look like a disaster. No wonder Steve Kerr was so pissed in his in-game interview. What did you see from your team in the first quarter? I saw one of the worst quarters of basketball we've ever played, and we're down five points. So if we can get our act together, we'll be fine. And you walk right off. And Steve Kerr is probably the best coach in the NBA to deal with when it comes to the media. And you can tell how furious he was. I mean, Houston, and understandably so, right? Houston dominated the boards, 50-50 balls, became 90-10 balls for the Rockets. And they jumped on every single lackadaisical and lazy move from Golden State. You know, like this pass that James Harden picked off. The back tap, it's kept alive by... Oh, his by and just when you thought that Golden State was getting back into it and might cut Houston's lead to single digits by halftime. KD misses a jumper, and then this happens. Gordon races across. Gordon takes to the rim and scores! Just beat the buzzer. Eric Gordon. Thanks to TNT for that. 
So what that was was a fitting end to a terrible half for the Warriors. Shaky offense leads to a Houston rebound and an easy two. Golden State had just played their worst half possible at the worst possible time. And the Rockets were full of swag, and they were feeling it, and now they were two quarters away from finishing off the bully that they were built to destroy. It just seemed like it was too much to ask for Golden State to have another Golden State third quarter. That is, until they did. Because then they come out and they outscore Houston 33-15 in the third, and they turn an 11-point deficit into a 7-point lead in just 12 minutes. I mean, I knew it was coming. You knew it was coming. Worst of all, Houston knew it was coming, and they still could not do a damn thing to stop it. Kevin Durant got hot. Steph got even hotter. 14 points in the quarter, including 11 straight at one point. He leads hard on the drive as Capella behind him. Man's game. And hits. Same play. Same play off the opposite corner. Anderson jumps out on the switch. Man's Here game. Is Curry leading it home. Steph Curry. Man's game. You have to take Anderson out. Man's game. Yes. Listen, when that guy lets it go and he's saying man's game, well, it's still in midair. You know it's going down. You know it's going down. And this whole thing about you can't flip the switch. You cannot flip the switch. Isn't that what we've been told for years? Except Golden State did it again in the third quarter. They went into halftime and they put their hands on that big old switch. And they changed it from garbage to elite. And they went from playing the worst basketball you've ever seen to some of the best basketball you'll ever see. And they did it in a matter of moments. And it's not like they haven't done it before. I mean, they did the exact same thing 48 hours earlier. In other words, if you like Game 6, then Game 7 was the perfect sequel. Same action, just slightly different plot line. And the same gut-wrenching, brutal, kick-in-the-junk ending for Houston. Gerald Green, for instance, was nearly speechless after that game, but he said it best afterwards, quote, heartbroken. When he was asked to use one more or use more than one word, he said, heartbroken. I mean, that's the truth, right? They were up 15. 15. They had a chance to finish off the champs. They had a boot on their throat. They had both hands on their throat, but they couldn't do it. And, you know... If you're looking for me to crack them for it, that's not happening either. I mean, they played their asses off for seven games. They could have gone into the tank after that Game 3 blowout. If they wanted to quit, they could have done it right then and there, and they'd already be about 96 holes into their offseason right now. But the Rockets didn't. They battled back in Games 4 and 5. They were up three games to two in the series. They had two good looks to finish it off, even without CP3. They had Golden State in trouble. They had them on the ropes. They simply could not finish them. They couldn't end them. They didn't have enough. They didn't have enough because that's how hard it is to beat Golden State. It takes everything you have for 48 minutes over seven games. You know, there's a line that was great, but it's been quoted into oblivion, but it's very applicable here. You come at the king, you best not miss. And Houston missed a lot. In fact, 27 straight times from beyond the arc. Oh, for 27. I mean, that's going to sting for a long, long time. They don't get it twisted. Just because they played their hearts out and have a lot to be proud of doesn't mean that 0 for 27 is not going to hurt because it will. I mean, forever, and it should. 0 for 27. I mean, a lot of them were good looks. The kind of looks that got them to 65 regular season wins in Game 7 of the Conference Finals. But when they needed them most, they didn't go down. And they just gassed out. The Rockets gassed out. They ran out of juice. 
And that's what it takes to beat the champs. You have to finish them because if you don't, they will find a way to finish you. And that's exactly what Golden State did. That's what happens when you have Steph Curry, Kevin Durant, Klay Thompson, and Draymond Green on the same team. Your margin for error is so much bigger and the leads that you can erase are so much larger. So let that soak in for a second. Houston's a team with two future Hall of Famers and a bunch of really nice pieces around them. They won 65. They were built specifically to beat Golden State. They go down one Hall of Famer, and they still blew the doors off Golden State in the first half of Game 6 and 7, but Golden State battled back. So to finish my thought on this, this is what champions do. They finish. And either you finish them, I mean you finish them, like you blow them out, or you want a stake right through their heart, and you shatter them into a thousand pieces, or they'll find a way to finish you. And they did, again. My guest is Kevin Weeks. Kevin, it's good to have you on the program. Good morning. How are you? Romy, good morning. Thanks for having me on. Uh, great. It's awesome, man. Uh, literally just in transit to T-Mobile Arena as we speak. Out here in beautiful, sunny Nevada skies here in beautiful Las Vegas. So, yeah, what a game last night. My man, it's great to have you back. All right, so as long as you're on the way to the arena, Kevin, let me start right there. Before we get into that game last night, and it was an incredible game, what do you make of the atmosphere in Vegas for game one? Atmosphere in Vegas. Well, I hope we have a lot of time, because I know how valuable your guests and your listeners are to you, but we need a lot of time to break this down. I'm going to tell you something. Nashville last year blew the roof off of the Stanley Cup final. How to produce one, how to party at one, how to attend one and everything else, and obviously the games were super compelling and highly entertaining. Nashville did it right last year, as right as it's been done. This year, though, game one, Vegas took it to an even higher level. And I, I apologize to all the great fans down in Smashville because they're amazing. But I think Vegas took it to another level. I couldn't believe. Yesterday I was literally watching when we were on set on the NHL Network on our pregame show, and it looked like people were coming out of the cement. Like people were coming out of the sewer grates. It was like a thriller video. Not zombies. But, I mean, the people just coming, just kept coming, kept coming. In waves, the atmosphere was bonkers. DJ Joe Green, Mark Shunock, they're, they're live in-house and, of course, outside the arena, MC. Everybody, it was off the chain. And Lil John, he was nice yesterday, too. He was on point. So, yeah, their fans, Romy, I'm telling you, you've got to get out here for a game. Some way, somehow, you've got to find a way to make it out here to game two. Clones, cops are stepping up enforcement on motorists who are not wearing their seatbelts. If you've thought to yourself, I'm not going very far, or I'm in a rush, or seatbelts are just too uncomfortable, then know this. You're putting yourself at the risk of injury or death. High visibility seatbelt enforcement is important 24 hours a day, but nighttime is especially deadly for unbuckled occupants. Keep that in mind every time you're driving or riding in a vehicle in the dark. You know the saying, now make it a household rule to live by, click it or tick it. When you're not wearing your seatbelt, you're risking serious injury or death. It's a fact. Cops are writing tickets, so don't take the risk. Don't play the odds. Again, let me say it so it sticks. Click it or tick it. Kevin Weeks, my guest. Kevin, listen, you take all the time you need because I think that's a really important point to make, and I've never seen anything like it. I thought Nashville was crazy last year. I have never seen anything like, and I'm not there, but I've never seen anything like what I saw for game one. Now, Barry Trotz was saying after the game that he thought that the atmosphere and the intensity of the crowd may have gotten to his guys, but he fully expects them to bounce back in game two. If you've never played in Vegas for a playoff game, let alone a Stanley Cup final game one, what is the experience like, and then how strong is that home ice advantage and what kind of an impact does it have on the opposition man i'll tell you one thing it was shaking outside 
it was shaking outside, and it was shaking inside T-Mobile Arena. I, I felt like the rink was shaking. And I don't know if you've seen this rink yet, Romy. It looks like the Jetsons. It's unbelievable. It's, I think it's even... I'd even give it the Staples Center 2.0. We know how great the Staples Center is out there in L.A. But I'll tell you one thing. When the atmosphere is this raucous, it's this bonkers, this bananas, this crazy in a good way, your fans can't help but to be vibrating literally in the seats. They're jumping up and down. And same thing for the players. All the players that I talked to, speaking to head coach John Gallant, we spoke to James Neal the day before, Wild Bill Carlson, Marc-Andre Fleury, all the guys on this Vegas Golden Knights team say, we've seen we're playing at home, there's nothing like it. Like, we're on a different level. And they are on a different level. That's why they always come out and get that all-important first goal. And they certainly were able to do that last night in Game 1. On the other side of it, for the Caps, what makes it difficult, and I thought the Caps had a good game in certain areas of the game, of course offensively, but I think they were a little bit too loose for this current version of the Caps. Once the game became a track meet, I think that it favored the Vegas Golden Knights. For Coach Trotz and the Caps, uh, the key thing for them is the first half of the first period, Yes, they were able to kind of hang in there. Although they got outshot, they were down one. And then they were able to turn the game around. Four different lead changes yesterday, but I don't think the Caps managed the game as well as they needed to, Romy. And another thing, this year's version, for any of you Caps fans out there in D.C. in the Beltway, you can attest to this. This year's version, the Washington Capitals, are a more complete 200-foot game on both sides of the puck. And I think they got away from that last night on the defensive zone responsibilities. Kevin Weeks joining us on the program. Kevin, go back to this notion of it turning into a track meet because Vegas is fast, they're physical, they're relentless. From a goalie's perspective and an overall defense perspective, how do you go about slowing them down and taking them off their game? The Capitals need to do what they did to Tampa because we know how dynamic Tampa is as well, but they had a pop gun offense in game six and seven against against the Caps because the Caps did a great job in the neutral zone. They played that right wing lock. They forced Tampa into playing a game they didn't want to play. And they're going to need to do that if they want to have a chance, which I believe they do have a chance, uh, to beat the biggest goal the Knights. I think this series can go six. I've got the Knights to win it in six, but if the Caps, they're the ones playing, if the Caps want to have success here in the Stanley Cup final, their attention to detail defensively, but for the level that we saw from them against the Tampa Bay Lightning in games six and seven, that's the way they need to play. Clamp down in the neutral zone, force the Golden Knights to have to chip pucks in, not a lot of plays off the rush. Force them to have to play that cycle game. Almost like a football analogy. Force them to run the ball. Essentially, that's what a lot of the guys and the coaches say. And if they can do that, they give themselves a better chance. But if they get sloppy and they become a little bit of the old Washington Capitals, that's not the recipe for success that's brought them to this point. And it certainly won't be the recipe for success for them to bring that all-important first cut back to D.C. in the Beltway. NHL Network studio analyst Kevin Weeks joining us. Hey, Kevin, speaking of physicality, number of Vegas Golden Knight players obviously had a problem with Tom Wilson's hit on Jonathan Marchessault and would like to see more discipline for it. He said afterwards, Wilson said, he'd probably say he shouldn't admire his pass. I'm just finishing my check. Quote, end of quote. Where do you come out on that play? Mike Rupp, who's on with us, my former team with the Devils, Rupper was saying yesterday on our post game that typically NHL player safety allows 0.8 seconds after a play after a puck is played to deliver a hit. That timed out at about 0.75. It was really close where that's concerned. Uh, one of the good things for Tom Wilson, that is, on the hit, is he delivered the hit through the body. It was shoulder, was the principal point of contact, and it was from shoulder down through the body, not shoulder up to pick his head. So that I think from that standpoint, it made it legal. 
Marshall Show, after the hit, also said to him, good hit, um, which is a great indicator of the fact that he didn't think that it was an egregious play or a malicious play. Marshall Show, based on the league's concussion protocol, spotters, he had to go to the locker room. He was able to come back and finish the game, fortunately for him and for the Golden Knights. He's your elite right, right winger, of course, and a part of that big-time first line that they have. I think in the, at the end of the day, I didn't love the hit selection per se, but Marshall So did admire his pass. He did put himself in a vulnerable position. And if Tom Wilson really wanted to injure Marshall So, based on his size and strength and the discrepancy of that from player to player, Wilson could have done that. So uh, it wasn't the best hit. A penalty was assessed on the play. They were offsetting minors on that play. Perhaps he could have gotten a major for it. But aside from that, I'm not sure that that's going to warrant any supplementary discipline. Kevin Weeks doing what he does. All right, what about the other side? The Capitals, for their part, were irritated that Ryan Reeves was out on the ice to score that game-tying goal because they felt that he should have been called for cross-checking on John Carlson. Do they have a point? They have a point. Perhaps it was a miss. It was a missed call. But as you saw all game long, really, there's only four penalty minutes aside. It was a relatively clean game, and the officials in in West Macaulay and Mark Jarnett, they allowed guys to play. They, you know, they don't want to be the stars. They're here by their own merits, without question, and it is a meritocracy in terms of who Stephen Walkham, who's our director of officiating for the league, who he selects as the officials for the Stanley Cup. It's their Stanley Cup, too, but they want to be out of the way. So they're trying to allow the players to do their thing. Let our, some of the best athletes in the world that are hockey players, let them play, let them dictate the outcome of the Stanley Cup. They, don't want, they want to be seen, but they don't want to be heard, really. And they just want to do a great job in terms of officiating. So, yeah, I think that perhaps there could have been a call there, but I'm with Ryan Reeves. After the game, I know John Carlson and some of the Caps had some things to say about it. I'm with Ryan Reeves. Hey, if penalty wasn't called, we play on. I mean, it's no different. You know that from hoops. It's the same thing. No foul call, you play on. You're not going to stop and wait for a foul to be called. And it's no different in the Stanley Cup playoffs, especially with our sport being as physically demanding as it is, let alone here in the Stanley Cup Finals. So uh, Ryan Reeves had another big game. He scored in consecutive games. And, hey, this I'll tell you one thing. That fourth line, Romy, they were a collective plus eight rating last night. That was huge. Plus eight. I know it. Rating, which is massive, as you just said. That was huge. Kevin Weeks joining us. Absolutely huge. Hey, Kevin, before you go, let me ask you this. Weigh in on this notion of that pregame show, you know, prior to what happens before they drop the puck. I mean, it's Vegas. It's a town where they give you a show, but you have a lot of hockey purists saying, come on, man, there's no place for this. This is the NHL. We're about tradition. We're about doing it professionally. Where do you come out on that aspect? Do you have any issue with what they do prior to the start of the game there? I do, and I, and I really do, and I don't like that. And I'm going to tell you this right now. One thing that I know about Italy is they've got some of the best food in the world, some of the best art and culture. And any time I'm in Rome or Amalfi Coast or wherever I'm, I am in Italy, I can have the same experience in terms of having a sample of that food and culture in New York when I'm at home, in Jersey when I'm at home, on the road here in Vegas, in Chicago. Point being is they never say, oh, pasta, it's Italy's food. It's our food. Only we can drink our limoncello. Only our limoncello can be done this way. Only our pesto sauce. Can... No, 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 no. They celebrate the fact that other people celebrate their greatness. And that's something that we need to continue to shift towards. I know Commissioner Bettman, Deputy Commissioner Bill Daly. I know somebody like Luke Robitaille with the LA Kings Hockey Hall of Famer. They're president of Hockey and Business Ops. They understand the fact that we need to continue to grow and evolve our game. Great Wayne Gretzky, a lot of our forefathers that played in this league, Merrill Lemieux, Luke Robitaille, Bobby Orr, I can go down the list of all the great players from generations past, Mark Messier, who I played, but 
These guys all did everything to help build our game. So too did a lot of women in different front offices, men and women in different front offices around the league. This isn't about uh, compromising tradition, air quotes. It's not about being disrespectful to the game. I hate that because as somebody whose parents were born in Barbados and left the beautiful island to emigrate to Canada and me aspiring to be an NHL player, in many ways I feel like I'm a quote-unquote non-traditional where that's concerned by way of birth, by way of origin, by way of heritage. And I live in the United States. This is home now. I'm an American resident. I love being here. So I really think a big part of our sport, Romy, is having as many people consume our sport as possible, having as many different girls and boys play our sport, men and women, adult rec leagues play our sport. And I think that that's really the sign of true greatness. And if we continue to grow our sport the way we have and the way we want to as we go forward, you know this as well as I do. There are LeBron James jerseys. There are Jordan jerseys literally in Africa. There's Cristiano Ronaldo jerseys in Haiti. I mean, that's what we're talking about, is continue to globalize our sport and have as many different people enjoy it. So uh, when those naysayers start talking, that comes from a sense of entitlement. I think it comes from a sense of arrogance. And as you know, Romy, nothing in sport, nothing in life is going to evolve and will continue to grow and improve if you have a sense of entitlement. You've got to go out and work for it every day. You've got to grind every day. And Bill Foley and the Maloof brothers, what they've done, the fans here in Vegas, uh, everything that they've done here, they've done 10x in terms of quality, to quote Grant Cardone, quality, <laughs> value, excellence, greatness. They put that all in a huge package, and there's no entitlement to success. This team hasn't come through the side door to success. They've busted through the front door to it. Kevin, that is the first Grant Cardone reference in the history of the jungle. Well played. <laughs> well Thank played. That's my guy. That's my guy. Well played. You can watch Kevin on NHL Network, NHL tonight, before and after every Stanley Cup Finals game from both Las Vegas and Washington, D.C. How do you argue with their success? They're three games away from winning the Stanley Cup Final as an expansion team. I agree with you. Kevin, great job. Really nice to have you back, man. Have a great series, and always good to talk to you. Thanks so much, Romy. Appreciate you having me on again, man. Keep up the great work, and thanks to all you great NHL fans around the world that tune in to watch us and that listen to Romy. Thank you so much. Dudes. Listen up. If you want to take years off your look and take the years off before breakfast, I've got something for you. Experience Control GX from Just For Men. The first shampoo with a brain. So what makes it so smart? It reduces gray the same way it grows in gradually. The more you shampoo with Control GX, the less gray you have. Just use it until you like what you see. Now how smart is that? Smart enough to be voted Men's Hair Care Product of the Year gradually reduce gray with the first shampoo with a brain find control gx in the shave aisle that's control gx let's talk lebron for a minute i'm ready to say it i've been thinking about this for a long time i wasn't sure if and when i would ever get to it but to me it's now official you can say it in fact i'm going to say it after game seven in boston sunday night lebron james is the greatest of all time LeBron is the GOAT. Yes, I went there. Yes, I said it. LeBron is the best to ever do it. Yeah, I said it. You know what? Actually, I really don't care. (laughs) I don't care at all. Couldn't care any less about this argument. I'm not here for arguments or Mount Rushmore's. It is the biggest waste of time ever. I am not interested in six rings to three and counting. 
You cannot compare guys from different eras, different positions, et cetera, et cetera. And besides, doing that means you're missing out on something great right now. Just as I'm not going to jump into breaking down Cavs Warriors Part 4. This series doesn't even start until Thursday. So there's lots of time to still break that down. In the meantime, what do you say we just appreciate what just went down? Because a day and a half later, and I'm still not sure exactly what I saw on Sunday night. I just know I've never seen anything quite like that. A guy in his 100th game of his 15th season playing all 48 minutes... 48 hours after playing 46 minutes and going for 35 points, 15 rebounds, and 9 assists to win a Game 7 on the road. Could MJ have done that? Maybe. Possibly. Probably. I don't know. I just know I don't care. I don't care because I did see LeBron just do it. And he did it even though Brad Stevens admitted that Boston's whole plan was to tire him out. Our goal going into the series was to make him exert as much energy as humanly possible and try to be as good as we can on everybody else who are good players. And, uh, you know, for the most part, I thought we were pretty good at that. And, you know, multiple games now in TD Garden, held him under 100, you know, three games in the 80s. But he still scored 35. It's a joke. He's right. It is a joke and pretty much incomprehensible. I mean, all you can do really is just laugh and shake your head when you see a guy playing in his third game in five days go four of six in the fourth quarter with three more boards and four more assists. Because 15 years in, you're not supposed to be doing that. Just as 15 years in, you're not supposed to be doing this. Uh-oh, LeBron threw one away. That's picked off by Rozier. Rozier looking to go all the way. LeBron's trying to measure him. He blocked it at the rim. Oh, my goodness. LeBron veered in from the side and knocked it down. Cavs radio with that. I mean, that guy's got no business doing that. As Ty Lu said, quote, he's had a lot of gaudy games, but I just think game seven in Boston, all the circumstances that surround Boston, the history, to come here in a hostile environment, it's right there, end quote. I mean, it is. That game right there is one of his best ever because it's not about the numbers. Because from a number standpoint, that's not even his best game in this postseason. It might not even be in the top five. Sunday night, as amazing as it was, was not about the numbers, What it was about was dragging this team of, I mean, whatever the hell they are, to the finals. I would say that's the most impressive thing he's ever done, but this is a guy who came back from down three games to one against a 73-win team to win Cleveland's first NBA title. So as amazing as it all is, the fact that it might not be the most amazing thing he's ever done is even more amazing. So is the fact that this guy's going to his eighth straight NBA Finals. Eight Finals is more than a lot of NBA franchises have ever been to. And he's done it eight years in a row. That's starting to creep into Bill Russell territory. And he did it all after being down 0-2 in the series. And he did it in Game 7 without Kevin Love and with Jeff Green as his wingman. Speaking of Jeff Green, give me a minute to talk about this cat. He takes a ton of heat on Twitter. A ton of heat. Because the guy does flash potential, but he never seems to deliver. And he's on his sixth team. And because he scored in single digits in each of the first five games of that series. But there is one thing about Green, of course. The guy did come back from open-heart surgery a few years back. And somehow he came up with 19 points in Game 7, which was pretty macho. But the fact that he was LeBron's wingman tells you everything. I'm not going to get into comparisons down through the ages. 
But MJ's number two was never Jeff Green. Sam Kobe and Russell and Bird. But LeBron's was, and he still found a way to win. And somehow, despite the fact that he's 15 years in, this guy still has enough gas in the tank against a much younger Celtics team to finish them off in their house. Yeah, and I know Celtics fans, like Rocket fans, are bemoaning the fact that they blew a double-digit lead or they missed threes down the stretch. I understand that. Just as I get that there's nothing I can say about Jason Tatum that's going to make you feel better. But let me tell you about that guy. He is special. Tatum is special. He's a different, different guy. He's a stud. To come in the way he has as a rookie and be so comfortable, so prepared for that spotlight, and a Game 7, two years out of high school, is stupid. I mean, it's remarkable. Except Game 7, Celtic fan, let's be real for a minute. It's not about the missed threes. It's about LeBron freaking James. Boston ran into a bad stretch of shooting, but even worse than that, they ran into LeBron. And that was only going to have one outcome. And that was LeBron with an Eastern Conference champion's hat again. Eight times in a row. So he's back. So we should go ahead and take one moment to appreciate what that guy's done. What he's still doing. And no, I'm not going to play that game. Six is more than three. (laughs) Yada. Six is more than three. Who cares? Like I said, you can't compare guys from different eras at different positions, especially while the guy's still doing it. Why not appreciate what that guy just did? Romy, Jay Stu's call has not aged well. Regards, Meg Ryan's face. I know this is probably walking the thin line. Signed, Geoff and Lincoln. In the jungle. Hey, Geoff, personal appearances, still not show fodder. How could Meg Ryan's face thumb out an email to me? Dear Jim, I don't think LeBron's team has a chance against the Warriors, but it's pretty incredible that he reached another finals while running with the XR4TI. I mean, Alvin has some nice handles. James Kelly gets the occasional block with his forehead, but Hawk has played no D since his back injury, and Austin's 0 for 27 shooting slump was hard to watch. Signed Casey in New Hampshire. Fine, what, Chael had nothing to do with that. Chael's not involved? Are they running four on five? I mean, seriously, look at what team he has got to the NBA Finals. Look at who this guy had to drag up and down the floor with him. Tom Haverstrow is my guest. Tom, it's great to have you back. Good morning, how are you? I'm good, how are you, Jim? Tom, I'm doing great. Can't wait to talk about talk to you about what we saw over the weekend. So let me just jump right into it, Tom. I know you're busy. But going into Game 7, there was definitely a concern from a Houston perspective about them running out of gas in the second half. So knowing that, Tom, what did you make of how that game started last night? And in particular, how Golden State came out in the first quarter, sloppy on offense, and getting killed on all the effort plays? Man, my cell phone was lit up. Jim, from all my friends and colleagues in the industry, my family, saying, wow, wow, the Warriors are done. The Houston Rockets are cooking. Can't believe it. KD's going to leave and the sky is falling. But I just kept telling everybody, like, just wait. We just saw this happen in game six. And if we know anything about James Harden, it's that he tends to wear down. In the last two postseasons, He's shooting 25% from three after game one and 38% from the floor. Uh, In this series alone, James Harden shot 16% from downtown after the first quarter. 
and had more at uh, 29 assists and 28 turnovers, which is really, really, really tough for a guy who handles the ball as often as he does to have a one-to-one, basically, assist-to-turnover ratio. So, Jim, it played out exactly as I suspected. The, the Rockets really struggled to play defense and hit shots in the second half, um, and it played out in Game 7. So I'm not surprised at all about what happened in Game 7 because it happened in Game 6, too, it's just the Warriors, when their backs are against the wall, they play great. But I think in the first quarter and in game ones, I think they just get a little complacent because they know um, it's not a do-or-die situation. And the Houston Rockets just don't have enough legs to do it for all 48 minutes. And I think it starts with James Harden. He's going to win the MVP this year, but I think he has to take a real gut check this summer and say, do I want to be great for 82 or do I want to be great for all 100? Because I think that's the next step for him in his career. Tom Haverstrow joining us. Really interesting thoughts. You go back to the Warriors for a minute. I mean, you started this thought, Tom, but how do you explain them showing up like that in the first half of both games six and seven? Are they just bored, or is it something else? No, I think it is a lot of complacency. I think it is boredom. I think it is knowing that they got four all-stars on their team. Forget Andre Iguodala. Um, with Kevon Looney in that starting lineup with the with uh, the, the Hamptons four, I'll call it, they were plus 31 in this series. Um, and even without Andre Iguodala, they were still really good with those four all-stars in the lineup. And I think for them, they just know, hey, we're going to be fine as long as we as long as we get things together after halftime, we can blow them out. And blow them out, they did. I mean, they missed the Rockets missed 27 three-pointers in a row and yes you can point to that being just a a huge anomaly but I think the Warriors just have a lot more weapons um, than than the Rockets and so I think that complacency is understandable given that they were going against a Rockets team that had no Chris Paul I think you're going into that being like we'll just walk all over them and that's kind of what happened in the second half they dictated the pace uh, Steph Curry with the ball in his hands went just supernova. And I think for them, the Warriors, you have to worry about that game one against Cleveland because, Jim, this 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 game one, I think right now the Warriors are favored by 12 points. It's the biggest spread for any playoff game or any finals game uh, since the 2001 finals. Game one, Lakers-Philadelphia 76ers. The Lakers were favored by, I think, 11 or 11 and a half in that game one. And what happened? The 76ers won. So I think that's going to be really interesting to me is whether at the Oracle the Warriors show up for game one or they look at the LeBron James, uh, you know, Kevin Love not, not looking good for game one. You have to wonder if that complacency is going to nip them in the bud for game one uh, and whether they show up. I think actually this is going to go five games, and I think the Warriors are going to lose game one because of the complacency and the boredom that you're talking about. Tom Haverstroh joining us. I think it's a really interesting point. I mean, if they're looking at a team that won 65 games and it's game seven on the road and they come out and they're bored, you can imagine what they must think looking at a Cleveland team that has LeBron and not much else right now. You know, from a Houston standpoint, Tom, before we leave that point, what do you think is going to sting the most about the way that series ended? Is it going to be the Chris Paul injury or the fact that they had double-digit leads in both games or that they went 0 for 27 or is it something else? Yeah, Daryl Morey after the game said he felt like they should have won that game seven, and it's hard. And they, I mean, it's hard to believe otherwise when when you look at how many missed three pointers they had in a row, um, and the fact that they had the the game at home, a double, they had a fifteen point lead 
uh, at one point in that game. Um, so you really got to feel like they, they blew it. Um, they blew that opportunity. But you know what? I feel like if you take a 30,000-foot look at this series and this season for the Houston Rockets, I think if you, if you had told me before the year that James Harden was going to be like just about a unanimous MVP, I think it's going to be close. I don't think he's going to be a unanimous MVP, but the, the runaway favorite for the MVP and that they're going to push the Golden State Warriors to seven games, I think they take that. So it's going to be a sting. I think it's going to hurt. Now, obviously, the 27 missed threes is going to really, really stink. But I think ultimately, as time wears on, I think they'll look back at this season as a huge success because you have to keep those expectations where they were in the preseason. This is a huge, huge success for the Rockets. I just hope um, that James Harden figures out how he can solve the post-game one issues that he's had over the last two years. He has 40-point games just about a 40 point uh, points per game average in game ones, and then completely wears down after that. He has to solve that issue if they want to take another step forward next year. Some, how do you think he goes about doing that? What should he do? I think a lot of it comes down to managing your minutes and managing your exertion levels in the regular season. You have to leave enough in the tank. And you know what? I don't blame James Harden for, for not uh, managing his, his effort levels or managing his uh, his energy in the regular season, because ultimately he hadn't won the MVP yet. He wanted to prove that he can win an MVP. You know, he won the six man a year award coming off the bench for the OKC. He's been in the MVP conversation. And I think this was just one thing on his resume he really wanted. And I'm not going to blame him for that, but I think ultimately you have to trust your teammates more. You have to trust Chris Paul more, and you don't have to do it all by yourself for the first 82 games of the season. So once he checks that box off, the MVP box, I think he's going to want to look at something more and just try to get in better shape, better conditioning, and delegate a lot more to Eric Gordon and Chris Paul types so he doesn't feel like he has to do it all by himself for the 82 games. You know, LeBron James could win MVPs every year in the regular season, but ultimately I think he preserves his body for that 100-game slog that he knows it's going to require to silence the doubters. And I think James Harden's at that point in his career where it's going to be more than just the regular season. Tom Haverstrow joining us right now. In fact, you mentioned LeBron, so let me ask you this, Tom. You've had a day and a half to think about this and reflect on what you saw from him in Game 7 of the Eastern Conference Finals. What kind of thoughts and reflections do you have on that performance? Um, legendary. Um, and, and the fact that he could have lost that game and probably had a better legacy for a lot of people in this country or a lot of people worldwide, you know, that three and five record in the finals, he, he could have just lost game seven and said, you know what? I don't want to sully that. Like, it's not worth it for me to add another loss in the finals column. Um, because that's, that was what was at stake. You know, he came out, and played incredibly uh, down the stretch. And the Celtics looked like they were worn down, that they were the young team, and they were. Um, but LeBron James, it is incredible what he's done. Uh, I tweeted this two nights ago. He played all 48 minutes in his 100th game of the season. He has been to eight straight NBA finals and has never missed a playoff game in his entire career. Jim, 235 games he's been asked to play in the playoffs and he's played all 235. It is astounding the kind of metronome of greatness that LeBron James is these days. It is an incredible achievement, not just to get to the finals, but to do it while averaging 34 points a game when everybody is trying to stop you. It's incredible. 
Um, There are not many words you can say about LeBron James. Those numbers put it pretty succinctly that he had just an amazing run with the against the Golden. I mean the the Boston Celtics. A hundred games this season, and he played all forty eight minutes. Didn't rest once in that hundredth game. Yeah, I mean, there's the level, Tom, that he's put in that time and played all those minutes, but his availability is just amazing. Like, when you look around the playoffs and around the league and you see key guys like Chris Paul, Andre Iguodala, earlier Steph Curry getting injured, how much more impressive is it that LeBron is doing what he's doing given the minutes that he's playing year in and year out? He, he raised the bar. He played all 82 games and, and finished the season as a minutes-per-game leader. It's not just that he played every game. It's that he played the most minutes of any player in the league. So, I mean, he checked off both of those boxes. And you look at the rest of the stars. I mean, Kawhi Leonard barely played this year at all. Kevin Durant last year had a, uh, an MCL st- uh, strain. Same deal with Steph Curry, MCL injury. Uh, Andre Iguodala, Chris Paul, um, Kyrie Irving. Just about every star in, here in the playoffs got hurt. And, and LeBron James still stands tall. Uh, it's an incredible achievement. I mean, you look at everybody else in the MVP conversation, and they're nowhere near as as durable, as reliable as LeBron James. And a lot of people point to that as, hey, he's just a genetic marvel. But it's more than that. He, he You saw what he looked like after the game with about 600 pounds of ice packs on his body. I mean, there's just I – mean, he prepares every single game – um, just about making sure that every inch, every edge that he has to stay healthy, he's going to take that. So it's it's a testament to not just how much he prepares, but also, yes, he's a physical marvel. All right, so Tom, one last thought about the matchup itself. As you've pointed out, Golden State's offense was completely different in the finals of the conference as they ended up running more isos than normal. So what was Houston doing, and is there any way Cleveland can replicate that as well? They were switching, Jim. The Houston Rockets defense was switching with a lot of guys, you know, smaller guys, P.J. Tucker, Chris Paul, switching on to Kevin Durant. And rather than moving the ball, they decided, hey, we're just going to take advantage of this mismatch and go one-on-one. And I think a lot of that was smart because, you know, you, know, you want to exploit those mismatches. But it, to an extent, you do not want to get away from what got you there. And for the Golden State Warriors – the pass-heavy offense, everyone touches the ball. That's the reason why they're a great team. And I think for a lot of stretches, they lost themselves a little bit trying to go one-on-one rather than moving the ball and getting open shots. And that's the Steph Curry way. That's how Klay Thompson is as good as he is, is ball movement. And I think in, in this finals, I don't know if the Cavaliers have the athletes to do that and the, and the frame of mind to switch on everything. It'll be interesting to see if they're going to go with a switch-heavy defense and try to lull the Warriors into that one-on-one basketball because that's going to be very demanding, not just physically, but mentally. You have to prepare that all season, and I don't know if the, if the Cavs can really flip that switch. And hanging over my head at the office are now three different countdown clocks, all of which are very important and all of which are spinning quickly. And if you've got a pen or you've got your phone handy and you want to put it in the notes app, go ahead and do it. Take some notes. Follow along closely right now because this summer in the jungle is about to get very nice. We're now 52 days. 52 days. Think about that now. 52 days away from the smack off. 52 days left for anybody out there looking to rip a golden ticket and get qualified. And keep in mind, I'm not going to be here for some of those 52 days. 
So if you want in on Smack Off 24 and you're shot at five grand, time is running out. And if I'm out working on that day, you can't get a golden ticket. Hawk cannot give away a golden ticket. As much as I love my guest hosts, they don't have the authority to give away a golden ticket. Alvin can. Alvin, you can. If when I'm in the basement, dude, what? Dude, dude, I can? Cool. Imagine me coming back and Alvin's giving away like 30 of them. Alvin, you can. You can, Alvin. You are the most tenured member of the XR4TI. I trust you. Look at him. He's giddy. Dude, dude. Your time is running out. Stop sitting on your hands. Pick up the horn. Get in here right now. I've got a stack of tickets that I'm looking to give away to the right people. Maybe you think you're one of those people. There is only one way to find out. Get at it. Because you don't have nearly as much time as you think you do. That's countdown clock number one. The second countdown clock is much tighter. Because the second one has only six days left. Six days until the voting opens up for the National Radio Hall of Fame. Six days. Six days. And so I need every last one of you to bang the ballot box and get us, us, into the Hall of Fame together. If you've heard me talk about it and have been wondering where and how to vote, those instructions are coming very soon, like six days soon. So be ready because my biggest ask of you is coming up first thing next week. And don't worry. I will have you totally keyed in on where you go to vote and what you have to do. Just make sure that you're here to hear it or you're following me on Twitter at Jim Rome. Third and final countdown clock is the most urgent. It pertains to the Hall of Fame vote. I know a number of you are going to vote and are just waiting for the polls to open up. However, another chunk of you say that you're willing to vote, but you want to know what's in it for you. You know, I see you working. Sort of. Not really. But I'm willing to play along because we need every vote that we can get. So to those of you looking for a payoff, I've got you. I'm officially at the negotiating table with a fountain pen, a blank piece of paper, and a box. A box that we're calling the Box of Chaos. Here's how it works. From now until Friday, this Friday, you can write down a list of your demands that you want me to meet in exchange for your Radio Hall of Fame vote for next week. I'm serious now. If there's something you want me to do on this show, tweet it to me or email it to Rome at haveatake.com. Any reasonable demand ends up in the box of chaos. And on Monday, when the voting opens up, I will randomly draw out five of them live on the air. And I will pay off all five of them if, if we get into the Hall of Fame. The countdown clock is at four days. Today, tomorrow, Thursday, Friday. These are your last four days to get a demand into the box of chaos. You can do better than you've already done. There's got to be something else you want. Start thinking of what you want in return for your vote. Because this time, I will play along. Here's some ideas that have come in already. My wife, Janet, co-hosts a segment with me. She told me over the weekend she's not doing it. I said, yes, you are. Yes, you are. If I pull that out of the box, you're doing it. Keep in mind, she has appeared on this show once in a quarter of a century. Also, I have to wear Hawk-style shirts buttoned up to the top for one whole week. If I pull that out of the box and you get me in, I will do it. The piece of crap list comes back. Yeah, I guess I'll do that. James Kelly, 
reads mean tweets about his five head. Well, we're definitely doing that. I finally appear on the Woodscopes. I'll do that. Lil Alvi hosts a segment. Dude, he will dude, do that. No, no, no. And the most requested demand, I bring back the hack off. I will do that. These are all things that are on the table. All things that I will draw from the box of chaos on Monday. All things that I will make good on if we get into the Hall of Fame. Get your demands in. You have only until the end of the show Friday. Lots of things to get done and get done quickly. But this is why I'm here. To get stuff done. How about you? I'm here to get things done. What about you? What are you doing for us? Come on now, clones. How awesome would that be? If you get me in, you can take credit for it. Because by the way, it's a listener vote. If I get in, it is because of you. You should take credit for it. In fact, we should get a cup made up if it ever were to happen and everybody can have it for one day. Do whatever you want. Abuse the cup in any way you want. Zach Goldich is my guest. Zach, it is really nice to have you on the show. How are you this morning? I'm doing really good. How about you? Good, good. Great. I'm great. Zach, really nice to talk to you. You know, you've got an amazing journey, which I think some people may be familiar with. But why don't we start just a few weeks back first to when you got word that the Chargers were going to sign you as a free agent. It's the moment that every football player dreams of. So what was it like for you when that came true and that became a reality? Uh, um, yeah, I guess it was just a sign that all the hard work had paid off. Um, you know, but then the hard work was just beginning. Um, you know, it was a celebratory moment, but at the same time, um, you know, it's like now I know I'm starting from the bottom again. I got to work my way up. Um, you know, just because they gave me a call and said that they wanted me on the team doesn't mean that I'm guaranteed a spot. Um, you know, so I'm, I'm out here doing the best I can to, to get a job. You know, Zach, you kind of led me right to the next point because people around you obviously were hyped up and excited about that signing. But you were very quick to remind everybody that it's only one step on the road. And you said, quote, I've simply just put my foot in the door and now I have to make my way to the table. There's no point standing at the front door while everyone's eating. End quote. I really love that quote. How would you describe your mindset going into minicamp? Um, you know, I just, I'm, trying to, I'm trying to be like a sponge. You know, I'm trying to take everything in. Um, you know, there's a lot to take in at once. And, you know, those guys here have been playing, um, you know, longer than I've been playing football my entire life. You know, those guys here who've been playing football, you know, since I was in high school. So, I mean, there's guys that know what they're doing. Um, they're great at what they're doing. And I got to compete with those guys. Um, you know, so I'm just trying to grind the hardest I can um, and, and soak in everything I can from these vets and, and the coaches around me. L.A. Charger, Zach Goldich is my guest. I mean, Zach, the fact that you're with the Chargers is even more remarkable when we go back six years. You're from Aurora, Colorado, and six years ago, you went to the midnight screening of The Dark Knight. Roughly 20 minutes into that movie, a gunman came into the theater next to you and opened up fire. A bullet came through the wall. It hit you in the neck just below your ear, and I want to be extremely respectful about this because it's incredibly traumatic, and I can understand where you might not want to talk about it, but you have said, and I quote, what I hold on to right now is a story, not just about myself, but about everyone else. I can carry that and represent them through what I do and how I carry myself, end quote. Once again, I have to ask you, where does an attitude and an approach like that come from? Oh, that's tough. I mean, I guess it it's just a credit to everybody who's been a part of my life. Um, you know, it's, you know, it's that they say it takes a village to raise a child. Um, you know, so my parents put a lot in me. Um, the people I surrounded myself with, the parent or the people that, you know, just happened to come in my life. Um, I think it's just a credit to them, you know, because I took away a little something from everybody. 
um, you know, the resiliency of my community, um, and my family, my friends, um, you know, my high school football team, it's that, that's where I get it from. Um, so Zach Oldish, my guest, I would imagine so. And then your own personal resiliency. You know, after you were hit, you walked from the theater and you found some guys doing some road work and one of them gave you the start of some medical attention. What do you remember about the rest of the night? Um, you know, it was, it was just hectic. You know, I, I started losing a lot of blood. So I started, I started to get lightheaded. Um, and the guy that was holding the towel out of my neck asked the officer to take me to the hospital. Um, you know, so I was rushed to the hospital and I was treated, um, you know, cause obviously it's a pretty significant wound in a, in a, uh, like a precious area. There's a lot of stuff going on in your neck, obviously. So they had to make sure that nothing, you know, no shrapnel was in there. It didn't hit anything, um, that would be a major concern. Um, but I just remember the hospital being hectic, you know, like an ER scene in a, in a trauma movie or a trauma show. Um, you know, and I mean, that hospital did the best they could. They treated everybody. Um, you know, it's not, it's not every day that you, you know, you get patients like that rushing in. Um, so that the hospital I went to did an, an outstanding job that night. Los Angeles Chargers offensive lineman, Zach Goldish is joining us to talk about his story and his background. You know, Zach, it's amazing. Another amazing aspect of this was roughly a month before that night, you had committed to play football at Colorado State, but you had to miss the opening practices and the first game while you recovered. Your coach at the time said that you still went to every single practice, and you told him, quote, Coach, I want this to be a lesson that you can use for the rest of your life. If there's an excuse any other kid can give that's worse than mine, I'd like to hear it, end quote. Once again, a really amazing attitude to me. How do you explain that mindset, even as somebody that young? I mean, you know, because as soon as, as soon as I was hit, you know, that night of the shooting, I ran out. I was conscious. I was able to walk, talk, breathe. Um, you know, so I knew that I, I could, I was going to live, you know, and I was going to be fine. Um, you know, so it's just who I am. You know, I don't miss things. I, I try to not be late to anything. Um, you know, if I was... Yeah, I didn't go with the intentions to practice, obviously, but if I could be there, I was going to be there. Um, not only just because that's who I am as a person and as a player, but um, I needed to be there for my for my teammates, for my friends, um, for everybody who was in support, because I think it would have been easier for everybody else to, um, you know, not worry about me as much if I can get back to my normal life um, as quickly as possible. You know, Zach, it seems to me that even you and I have this conversation right now in 2018. It's not an easy conversation at all to have. And as you said, that you were just 17 at that time. And then, then suddenly everybody is sticking a camera in your face. And obviously football pales in comparison to the importance of living. But at the same time, you've talked about how you leaned on football after that. What do you mean by that? Um, you know, football has always been my escape, um, not only as a, um, a, way to, a way to get through the shooting, um, you know, but throughout stress throughout my entire life, um, it was just a way to <laughs> get away from everything, you know, because when you're on the football field, the only thing that matters is football. Um, I'm not really thinking about anything else. So to have something to escape to, something to lean on, um, what was great. And, you know, it, if you've ever played football, if you've ever been part of an organized sport, you know the importance of, of being on a team. Um, you know, and that event really brought my teammates together. Um, and so to just lean on their support, um, you know, that's what I needed. And that's what I went towards. And then the truth is there were roughly 80 students from your high school 
including 20 football players at the movie theater that night. So you became a role model and an inspiration for a lot of people. What was that experience like for you? Um, I embraced it as much as I could. Um, you know, I think I handled it fairly well. Um, you know, I, I always tell people, you know, if, if this were, if this were to happen to anybody, you know, I'm kind of glad it happened to me. Um, cause I don't, I don't know how other people would have handled it. Um, you know, and I mean, it, what, what, what you're saying is you became a, like an inspiration and a role model and I continue to share my story. Um, because there's one person out there who's listening to this right now who's going to take something away from it and they're going to apply it in their life and it's going to help them go through something. It's not everybody, but there's going to be one person out there. And so that, that's, that's what means the most to me. Um, because if I can just help one person, you know, if some person can pull one thing away from my story, um, it, it makes it all worth it, you know, so. 100%. And that's why I'm so glad you're willing to share that story. As part of that story, in the homecoming game that year, you scored a touchdown on a handoff. It was an enormous moment. What was the play call, and what do you remember that feeling being like when you hit the end zone? I have no, I have no memory of what the play call was. All I remember is we were up by a lot, um, you know, so we can kind of mess around a little bit. And, you know, my high school coach just came up to me and said, hey, do you want to get the ball? I was a senior, and uh, – you know, I never get the ball during games. So I was like, heck yeah, I want to get the ball. So, you know, they told me just to line up in the backfield, run to the right, you know, right behind the guard, um, right right in that hole, you know. So I just grabbed the ball and just ran, ran for as fast as I could. <laughs> it was an amazing moment, actually. You know, Zach, you talk about how if you can impact one person, if one person's listening, that makes it all worth it. You know, as I mentioned, the bullet hit you in the neck a fraction of an inch in any direction, and the results could have been even worse. When you go through an experience like that, do you look at life differently as a result? What did it do for your entire perspective? Um, I mean, I think that anybody that goes through a near-death experience has a different perspective on life. Uh, you know, they enjoy the little things. They tell people they love them. They em- embrace you know, the view, the smells, the sounds, um, you know, for it to come that close, you know, to being completely different from my life. And then I can be here today, see, smell, taste, um, you know, tell people I love them, play the sport that I love, um, do everything I would have done if this never happened. It definitely hits, hits home. Um, and I don't take anything for granted. You know, I tell people I love them. I enjoy the little things. And it's, it, and it's, it's been amazing since, you know, to be honest, because there's things that people don't see or they don't appreciate. And then I'm on, I'm over here appreciating everything and just taking everything in um, the best I can. So, My man, I think you're amazing. I've got one final question. Knowing everything you've been through and all the work that you've put in, what do you think it's going to feel like to put on Chargers gear during minicamp? Uh, um. It's going gonna, it's gonna to be crazy, you know. Um, it, <laughs> I don't really know. I, I really can't put it into words. Um, you know, like throughout OTAs, throughout rookie minicamp, I've, I've worn a Chargers helmet, and it still really hasn't hit me. You know, this is a team in the National Football League, and not many, not many people get to have this opportunity. Um, you know, but it, it's going to feel great. I'm going to try my best. Um, you know, I'm just going to do what I do because I got here for a reason. And, you know, I'm just going to let the, the rest take care of itself. Um, I'm having fun regardless. It's been an amazing experience. I'm so appreciative of the Chargers for allowing me to have this opportunity. 
I've got profound respect and admiration for you, Zach, and I know everybody listening does too. I really appreciate you sharing that story because I know for a fact that you help a lot more than just one person. I really appreciate it a lot, Zach. Great to have you on the show. Good luck with everything, and I hope we can do it again soon. I'd love to run you down again and get caught up. Yeah, of course. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. It's been a blast. Got a phone line open for you right now. Man, I want to give away a golden ticket in the worst way imaginable. It's not happening. It's not happening. Let's go to Las Vegas. Dave in Vegas. It's good to have you, Dave. How are you? Hey, what's happening, James? What's up? How are you, Dave? I got a question. You know, watching this uh, pregame show is like watching. uh, does nothing for me to get pumped up for a hockey game. I mean, am I watching a show at the Excalibur or am I watching a hockey game? The NHL is clearly trying to entertain the millennials. Um, we're at six points to four points. Also, Knights winning the cup their first year does nothing to impress me, um, considering the NHL is now a 50 and over non check league. We're watching the National Hockey We're not watching the National Hockey League anymore. We're watching the Nice Hockey League. This is G Money, Rack Me James. All right, Dave, see you, bud. Don't agree with any of that, so I can't really rack you. Wait a minute, G Money? He just went self lost. Come on, Alvin. No. Alvin, you're just spending all your time trying to figure out who you're going to give a golden ticket to. Gave you that new authority. Bro, I cannot believe you let that go. Levi the trash man. It's Iceman. Loney Carter in Spokane. Yikes. Bighorn from Windsor, Ontario. They call me the bowling ball here in Tampa. Jay. Dizzle. Ah. Manny Cheeseburger over here. Ah. Oh, the name is Shot Collins. Ah. The Clone Prophet. Ah. This is the Grump. Ah. This is the Grouch. Ah. Moldoggy in NorCal, East Bay to be exact. Ah. The Dougler. I'm from the city of Fad Diets and Yoga Pants. Ah. The Zookeeper. Oh, good gloss. Where did that come from? Uh, at a buddy's wedding. Ah. So you gotta call me Rooster. Ah. Actually, this is Garbage Man, Brad. Ah. Not Jonathan, it's Jeff. Ah. My boys call me the Cracker Jack. Ah. G-Money. Actually, they call me Sexy Rexy from New Mexico. They call me the Red Dog. Let's go with Horse Monkey today. On the court, they call me the Tree Frog. This is G Money, Rack Me James. All right, Dave, see you, bud. Wait a minute, G Money? He's went so lost. Come on, Alvin. No. Alvin, you're just spending all your time trying to figure out who you're going to give a golden ticket to. Gave me that new authority. Good night now! How to show up with Coca-Cola energy. You're tired and you're thinking of canceling on your friends. Don't do it! Every time you cancel on a friend, a unicorn loses its horn and becomes a regular horse. Do you really want that on your conscience? Instead, grab an ice-cold can of Coca-Cola energy with delicious Coke taste and reinvigorating energy. Keep the unicorns alive! Show up every day with Coca-Cola energy. Energy you want, taste you love.